back, everybody, to another episode of the HR revolution um, or evolution. No matter what way we look at it, the world of work is changing, changing faster than most can uh, get their arms or head around. Um, and we are trying to be a part of the solution to that process. And we have conversations with thought leaders in the world of HR. And HR itself is revolutionizing itself in order to ensure it's per always providing value back to the business. We like to provide value to our audience by having these thought leaders on our show and picking their brains and trying to steal uh, their intellectual capital so we can start applying some of these tricks of the trade and, and, and things that they have learned to be true into our day jobs and making us more successful and more of a valued asset within the organization and theoretically having a greater impact on the lives of our employees. We feel that if you're positively impacting the lives of your employees, that we're doing our job right in HR. So here we are again today, sitting with another thought leader in the space and really on the mental and psychological side of things, which is an important component that we need to understand and we need to understand it quickly because here we are in a totally different environment than we've ever been before. And the more understanding and awareness around these scenarios will help us prioritize what is going to be most important and most impactful to the individual, but also the business. And today with me, I have Bobby Spaziani, who is the co-host today on the HR Revolution. Yeah, Kevin. Well, first and foremost, I got to say it's great to be back with you in this in this setting again. Um, yeah, and and Kevin, I, um, I I agree with you. You know, and and just for the audience, maybe we have some new members. Uh, Kevin and I really started this passion project um, around evolutionizing HR about two years ago at this point, and and really the goal of our podcast and and, and some of the things that we do is really to arm HR professionals with the ability to sit at the C-suite and you know, have those business and financial conversations. So um, we're extremely excited today to welcome our guest. And um, Kevin, I'll turn it back over to you. Yes. And today's distinguished guest, without further ado, is Dr. Yishai Barkardi. Barkadari. Thank you. Thanks for <laughs> so today's special guest. Without further ado, ado is Dr. Yi Barkadari, and he is a practicing private psychologist, but found that psychology is working its way even more so into the working world today. So he's doing some additional executive coaching and consulting with businesses on a daily basis to make them more emotionally aware and or emotionally intelligent, as we're seeing today in the keyword search. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yishai. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Um, and I do go by Dr. Yishai. I know my last name is quite a mouthful. Mouthful. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every teacher I ever had, every professor I ever had, you know, and half the other people I've ever met, maybe more, probably more, you know, uh, there's there's just a lot that goes into there. That's part of, you know, be, being from a Middle Eastern background. I mean, I was born here in the States, but um, yeah, having parents from the Middle East means I got a very Middle Eastern name, which is <laughs> not easily pronounceable. <laughs> well, don't don't get alarmed. Even my last name, which is Italian, people struggle with. Rastucci, Rastiki, mm -hmm. I've heard it all. So I want to learn a little bit more about you, kind of I know what motivates you and what gets you out of bed from, from conversations, but I want to learn a little bit more about the individual. So I have to ask, right? So when you wake mm -hmm. up in the morning and you need a song to pump you up for your first meeting that you're having that day, what type of music or what song specifically are you putting on, Dr. Yishai? Ooh, that's a great question. Gosh, uh, my brain was kind of running really quickly because I actually really just like to pop on Spotify and just like, depending on my mood, I'll, I'll choose something else um, or I'll choose a different genre. Cause I, I like a bunch of different genres, but one that came to mind for me is high hopes. Okay. 
Okay. Good song. Good song. I like it. I like it. And all right. So we're listening to High Hopes and you're about to take us to your favorite restaurant, which is what? Ooh, also good question. Um, my wife and I actually are quite the foodie couple. We really love our food. Um, one of the things is, so I'm Orthodox Jewish and I only eat kosher. Okay. Uh, and so what that means is our choices are kind of limited. We found a place uh, near us, uh, a nice little Chinese restaurant that's actually owned and run by uh, a Chinese family. And my wife, who at some point in her life wasn't eating kosher before, before we met, um, we went there and my wife was like, this tastes just like non-kosher Chinese. And so every time we're getting Chinese, we're going there. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, I had never experienced that before. So uh, it was really exciting. So we kind of love that place. Um, also, kosher food is really expensive and they happen to have slightly less expensive prices or a little bit closer to the typical Chinese. So well, that's, uh, those we are went the, all around. the good food right there. Those yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bobby, what do you got? Yeah, you know, I, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, I, I can't imagine what your calendar looks like, Dr. Yishai, with, um, you know, between the podcast, between all your speaking engagements and your executive coaching and, and, and the list goes on and on. I just kind of want to know what you do for fun when you have a little free time. That's a great question. So I don't like, well, I'll start with this. I'm going to take a step back. I have a hard time shutting my brain off. And sometimes I actually like to run my brain in a way that's fun. So I like really strategy games. My wife and I actually sometimes on weekends will play board games. One of the things I really like about being observant Jewish is that on our Sabbath, like between Friday when the sun goes down and basically Saturday night, uh, there's no electronics. There's no work. There's spending time with friends, family. It's awesome. Um, we recently had our first daughter. She is, as of the end of... As of the end of March, she's like 10 months now. So we really love to spend time with her, which is awesome. She's, she's the handful of the handfuls and we're loving it. Um, and just having that quality family time is really awesome. Also, you know, when she's taking a nap, my wife and I really like to play games. We also really love to just kind of deeply connect and talk. And I also really like strategy games. So there's a card, card game I play. I'm kind of nerdy in this way. It's called Magic the Gathering. It's been around for, I don't know, like 30 years now almost. Um, which is kind of insane. Um, but my brain is constantly thinking about not like during my day while I'm working, but when <laughs> I want to take a break and I want to run my brain, but I want to run on something fun. Yeah. Um, I'll think about that game. And I really like actually to build decks and, and thinking about how to put the pieces together. I really like to wrap my head around something to understand how each piece or each in this case card synergizes with the next one. And you'll see how that kind of shows up in my work in an everyday way. Um, this is a, a very fun way for me to kind of use that harness that way that my brain works that I just find so recharging for me. I love that. That's incredible. The wheels are always turning. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. I do also, like I said, I like to slow down and I love that for me, the Sabbath or Saturday is really a time to slow down and, and just enjoy, relax. I love to read. Um, that's just really great. I think that's awesome, though, to, to, to just hear and learn about your culture and, and, and something that I think a lot of people could could and, and should probably implement in there is taking a step back from those digital mm -hmm. devices, right? And, and really taking the opportunity to really socially connect um, and emotionally connect. And, and I know we're going to be getting into that exciting things uh, later on within the conversation today. But I wanted to start with this, right? Uh, so you, you mentioned that your brain is always running. My, my brain is always running. Um, and I think that a lot of people had the opportunity to hit the pause button right during the pandemic. It was, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have any distractions, right? We didn't have the NFL. We didn't have the NBA. We didn't have concerts. We didn't have celebrity gossip, right? Mm -hmm. We really had the opportunity to take a pause. 
And I think this great pause is what's leading to where we are right now in the conversation and the great resignation. And what mm. I would like to learn from you today is really understanding the psychology of what that experience is like when we experience mass trauma. And mm. what are the, some of the things that we are now seeing across the workforce and across the employee population as almost results of that trauma? Can you kind of get into that and, and exp explain really what people experience and why it has led to where we are today, where people are leaving other organizations and finding new purpose? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot that goes into that. So I'm going to try to simplify something that's really complex. There are a few things you're going to hear from me. One is that I really like to get very clear, specific definitions. So I'm going to start with a definition for trauma. Trauma comes in so many different forms. Sometimes in my business, we call it like a big T trauma versus a little T trauma. Uh, some traumas can be chronic and low level. Other ones can be a big flashy event, a very huge impactful kind of earth shattering event. Um, now I know for some people and in some ways, the pandemic has really been that kind of big T trauma earth shattering event. We've had so many hundreds of thousands, even millions of people dying. And that means that in America, it's something insane. Like one out of 20 people have a friend or relative who's died. And that means that people are experiencing something really big and impactful for them. And one of the things that happens when people around us, we know we lose them, is we start to evaluate and reevaluate what is really important to me in life. We absolutely do that. Coming to the definition for trauma, trauma, the way I look at it is, it is learning. When someone has a big event or a low level, but chronic series of events, what happens is they learn about themselves, they learn about their environment, and they learn about what do I need to do? How do I need to adapt in order to survive in this environment? And sometimes they ask themselves, is this environment really suited for me or not? Do I need to actually go out and find or terraform or create a new environment or adapt a new environment? Humans are actually extremely adept at that. We are incredibly adaptable. And in some ways that's really useful. Sometimes it is very dysfunctional, it gets in the way. And I think it's really important to understand the distinction between those and how challenging it can be. I think people will throw around the word like trauma and indicate either they'll put it on the person or they'll put it on some kind of a process as if it's all unhelpful. Whereas the way I understand it is it's a process happening in our brain that is making sense of the needs that are not being met, ways in which ourselves, our futures, our needs, our wants, our dreams, our goals are being threatened or taken away or have been shattered or broken. And our brain is trying really hard to get its, to get its hands, to get itself wrapped around. What is the future going to look like? Is it going to look like more of the same? Is it going to change? Do I need to anticipate that kind of change? How do I adapt myself? Can I adapt my environment? What do I need to do? in order to still be able to meet my needs day to day. And that could be financial, it could be personal. There's so many different kinds of needs that we have. I think it's part of what makes our HR so tricky is that there's so many different needs. And when it comes to work, we have increasingly brought many of them into that workspace, which is also really challenging. So when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about learning that's happening because of events that are showing us and indicating to us that our needs are not being met, or there's a threat to shatter or destroy or break those things, whether just in the present or in the future, or, and this is very true about the pandemic, things have continued to shift in an unpredictable way. 
that has been so impactful. And the consequences are still compounding. They're still rippling across not just one sector, but so, so many different sectors. It is really complex. It's a full-time job for a team of researchers and scientists just to try to figure out what is happening. And, and one of the things that you, I think you touched on is the consistency. It, there's, one, there's one consistent thing, theme is change, right? Mm -hmm. and, and change and, and the ability to, to accept it, the ability to relish uh, and, and actually enjoy it um, mm. helps us kind of change our intention, right? If our intentions are set, our attention starts to change. And I think leadership's intentions are starting to change and businesses' intentions are starting to change because they have to adapt to the new environment in which they're in. And, and like you said, human homeostasis our bodies are constantly fighting to find homeostasis we're naturally resilient species mm -hmm. and that's where where i started having a, a real problem was the resilient conversation during 2020 to 2022 and why i hated that mm -hmm. word can you get into in your estimation what creates a resilient individual or workforce is mm -hmm. it really something that is individualized or does it have more to do of the the environment in which they're in that's a great question. I'm going to actually, I know that that's like an either or, I'm going to break that and say it's both. Um, and I think it, we really need to understand that it's both. So resilience is often defined as the ability to kind of power through or stay centered and stay balanced, even in the face of unbalancing forces. I'm going to say something that to me and perhaps for you, Kevin, might start to ring true, which is if, we are, if we're only looking at resilience, it's really easy to, to kind of push or, or force that on the person to say either you are resilient or you're not resilient. I kind of say like, it's your job to do the balancing act. You talked about homeostasis in that sense. What creates resilience is adaptability. Balance is not about having just this very wide base and a low center of gravity, which is the way I think we kind of think about in a very physics-oriented, nerdy way. The way we think about resilience is like, oh, well, all the, all the force in the world isn't going to tip you over because you have a very wide base and a low center of gravity, all your weights towards the bottom. It's really hard to tip you over. That's how we think about resilience. However, balance is actually an entirely different process, which requires constant shifting and movement and being able to understand where are we headed and how do we, for example, put the foot in front of us so that we don't fall? How do we shift our weight so that in the face of those forces, whether it's a gale force wind or someone who's on a bike that comes and knocks, knocks us, that we don't just fall down or that we're, we're able to get back up and still stay on course or sometimes find a new course. All of that, I think, is really important to understand because, again, we often define resilience as the ability to weather the storm as opposed to the ability to navigate the storm. What I heard is that what you said earlier is that trauma is learning what environment that we want, right? Well, we're going to either find the right environment or we're going to create it. And I think that's really what is stemming in this great resignation is that some people are cashing in their intellectual capital. You started your own business yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. So now people, if they can't find the environment that they want to be a part of, they're going to go and create their own business. They're going to be more solo entrepreneurship. And that's what we're starting to see. And there, there is continues to be a gap. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I kind of want to jump into that because, you know, and, and kind of piggyback off that, Kevin, because we, we talk about this now during the pandemic. I, I kind of look at it and call it the new age of the entrepreneur. I think in something like 2020, there were maybe 4.4 million 
people that started their own businesses up. So from your perspective and your practice and, and the individuals that you coach, you know, what are the types of, uh, of, of things that you're saying to these individuals who are kind of breaking away from corporate America and, and starting their own business? What are those conversations looking like? That's a great question. It really depends on the person's own motivation and what their goals are, I think. And it also depends on their approach to those things. So what I am finding similar to what you're talking about is there are many people who have come to a realization that if they're depending on a workplace, on someone else who's running their business, that they are handing over a piece of their freedom for security. What many of them are struggling with often is that when they try to get that freedom, what they don't necessarily always see or recognize, or they might tell themselves a different story about it is when you take that freedom onto your own hands, you're also shouldering a great deal of responsibility, which means that if the business doesn't do well, who doesn't get a paycheck? Right. And the first when, one get furloughed. Yeah. Right. And owners and founders are the first ones to furlough themselves. Absolutely. Not always, right? Sometimes there are owners and founders who keep taking money for themselves. And we hear stories about that all the time. However, that's not, in my experience, the majority. So some of the conversations that I have is, let's be very clear with the freedom you're seeking and the security you're giving up. And what are the set of skills you need in order to address or ensure or in order to shore up your adaptability and or your resilience. These are a lot of conversations that I'm having. I will not pretend that that's an easy process, nor can I pretend that I can predict or, or ensure a specific outcome. Not only would, that, would, from my perspective, that be tremendous arrogance, it would be giving people guarantees for not just their behavior, but for their environment, for what happens in the different sectors or in the business world. And that's not a great position for any of us to be in. So there's a lot of talking about the realities of these things. There's a lot of working to understand what it means to be in a position of leadership for yourself. And if you're going to build a team and hire others, what does it then look like? And some of it is about actually understanding, learning from their experiences and what it is that they want to create that may be different. Again, sometimes that's for themselves. Sometimes it's also for others. They want to create a work environment that meets needs in a way that they did not get to experience for themselves. And so there's a lot of excitement and passion. I think there's a lot of looking at the future and saying, I can do this better. Mm -hmm. uh, what some people really struggle with is when, you know, when the tire hits the pavement, that it is a very different story. It's easy to sit in the back seat and say, you're not driving well. Uh, it is much harder to get into the driver's seat, especially for the first time. And I'll use an analogy. If you ever go from America to Europe, where they're driving on the other side of the road, it is a very different experience and it can be very hard to be able to focus on all of those things. And then there's sometimes or often at the very beginning, you need a very different kind of focus to master and develop a lot of those skills to set up systems and processes. I mean, there's just so much that happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm experiencing this, of course, myself, as I founded my practice in January of 2022, I started my practice and then the first for the first three weeks for me, there were crickets. There was nothing happening. There was zero growth. And then, of course, as that happened, I was looking at adapting and thinking about what is working, what isn't working, and figuring out, and of course, tinkering and trying a bunch of things. 
And then of course, as I was doing that, a bunch of things didn't work and some things ended up working. And I then reinvested or invested further in those things. And then my practice exploded from having just a handful of patients to being completely full to having a waiting list, which is now where I'm sitting. Um, and I know one of the things we were happy, we were talking about beforehand, uh, Kevin, when, when we were uh, just having the, the pre-chat was, you know, maybe it's time to raise my prices if there's so much demand for my services, right? And, and that's, again, something that is just wild to think about when I've literally had this practice for like under three months. Yeah, that's amazing. But it's an, a testament to you, you're, you adapting to the market. And I think we all had to adapt, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think of some of the things that you were saying, and I want to kind of go back to because it's common tongue right now, right? Um, there's a lot of uh, perceptions or assumptions being made as to why people are not returning back to the working world. What well, was at first, it was the federal mm. checks, right? They were making more money, sitting on the sidelines and going to work, right? And then there's this generational, which I am being told has been told to our parents' generation that we're lazy, that we're entitled, right? Mm. All these different things. And there's a lot of assumptions being made. And one of the things that's being said is that during the pandemic, we felt like we were out of control, right? That we could control nothing. And you said Mm -hmm. the normal was changing and being rewritten every day, that definition. And it's still being rewritten every day because now we have more of a global economy in the forefront of everybody's mind and starting to see how one impacts the other, right? that cause and effect. And now here we are. Do you feel like people are making these changes in their lives because they've reprioritized what is important in life? Or do you feel that it's, they are just want to be in control of something and control of their decision to leave, mm. and go to that environment that they feel is more conducive to their wants and needs and purpose? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to, I'm going to actually take a step back and say something. My thoughts are really important to be careful and intentional about. One thing that you were pointing out is that people came up with all kinds of reasons based on their thinking processes for why this is happening. And that's a, it's important to recognize that those are just thoughts. They don't necessarily align with reality. Just because I think something doesn't make it the reality. And there's a potential danger in being overconfident or over-reliant on my thought process. I have seen this so much that I thought it was really important to just take a step back and point that out. I may have some thoughts, and I certainly do. At the same time, my thoughts are not going to create or or necessarily reveal a reality. That's where at least the scientist part of me in the scientist practitioner, right? The psychologist part of me that's really geeks out on numbers and cares about research is saying, we're going to need to take a step back and actually look at this over a long haul. I can share with you with you some thoughts that may be contributors and that are important to think about. You know, and some of them, Kevin, you were, you were pointing out. One of them, I think, is very much that when the pandemic hit, a fundamental set of ways that we used to meet many of our needs disappeared and has continued to change overnight. Adapting is an energy-intensive process. When are changes, right? So many of the things people used to do, people used to Then lockdowns happened and certainly the companies that ran the gyms really suffered, as well as people who used to rely on that in order to get their workouts done. Now, of course, there were a lot of impacts in, in, as a result of that. For example, businesses that sold home gym equipment couldn't keep anything in stock because their businesses were growing so fast or the demand was so high. People were trying to adapt or shift. When it comes to work, I think it's a piece to consider is that 
needs that people had that used to be met started to shift over and no longer be met in the same way. You know, one thing that's certainly been a very big piece of that is working from home for anybody whose job was sitting in front of a computer or could be, even if it was working with teams, could be collaborated digitally. What they started to experience was what happens when I don't have a commute? And I'll say that's, that's often a double-edged sword. I've actually heard people say, I miss my commute. Now, when I end my day, I don't have any transition time to listen to a podcast. Podcast listenership has gone down, right? For example, I don't have that time to listen to a podcast. I don't have that time to think about my day. I don't have that time to watch a TV show. I don't have that time to just read a book or to just zone out. I don't have that time for myself anymore. And then or my family or all the things that need to get done at home, all of that stuff is, is waiting for me zero seconds after I log out, right? And that makes a very big difference for people. The other side of that for some people is I used to have a two hour commute and they say to themselves, I will never put myself, right? And so we'll one element of it is people, because of all this shakeup, started to, you said pause before, right? We had this big pause that happened. And I like to say change happens in a three-part process, pause, process, and plan. Pausing, processing what is and isn't working, and then planning for the future. And then, of course, enacting that plan. And whether or not that plan works, if the plan works, great, we're not taking another pause, right? We're kind of accelerating ourselves into that plan most frequently. If it doesn't work, we often find ourselves in another pause. We find ourselves kind of stuck again or rethinking again. So that's a process I think that's been happening for many people. I don't know if that's the only factor though, right? I think there are other elements and other factors that may be contributing to people's different choices. There's another thing that I think is really interesting. There's a book called, uh, I believe it's called Generations, The History of America's Future. And it's from like the 19 or eight, it's like the 1800s. And it's actually to the to the later 2000s, to like 2069. And it's a predictive book. What's interesting is it's a historian and a, and a, a sociologist who actually look at what they call a general diagonal, kind of a cycle of four different types of generations. And what's interesting is one of the points they make is throughout history, there are events that fundamentally shift and alter how a generation experiences their environment, which then affects how they raise their children, who not surprisingly, but importantly, experience a different environment than their parents, who then from their environment do a different, have a different approach with their children, mm. right? And so what, what these authors found is that there's actually a moderately predictive cycle, quite a predictive cycle of four types of generations. And we may be finding ourselves in and among one of them. What's interesting is the, the previous generation often says, I have no idea what's going on with you. And th what they have is they have a perspective of the generation above them, their parents, their own generation, and then they look at the one below them, which is three, but the cycle is four. So everybody's missing some data, which yeah. is frequently the way people often, and, and perhaps part of why we often struggle to really have our thought process aligned with what may be happening. Again, this is where, for me, research and reading and understanding these things can be a really big component of it. We have been living in a generation of very generative people, people who are really interested and invested in creating and building more. Mm. By the way, the reason our generation has been able to do that comes out of the previous generation 
who worked really hard and built up an environment where there were far more resources mm -hmm. than their parents' generation. Mm -hmm. So we grew up, many of us may have grown up in a generation where there were enough more resources that we could start thinking, how can we do this better? What can we do with these resources? How can we make something more in a way that was far freer than our parents whose parents had much less and maybe even struggled a lot more. And they saw that and said, Ooh, we need to save up and build up resources because winter may be coming. And then their kids experience quite a big spring. There's just abundance in a lot of ways. And that doesn't mean it's true for everybody, mm -hmm. but there may be elements of this that are generationally true, which then create an environment mm -hmm. of, for us, and I think in our generation, we're seeing kind of innovation we haven't seen since almost a hundred years ago, about four generations ago. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Which I love. And now we're talking about the five generations of the workforce. So now you have a repeat of a cycle, uh, which is mm -hmm. also interesting. But we know that majority of the workforce that left 55 years and older during, during this great resignation over the last four or five months, right? Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on and, and summarize to, and then get to Bobby's question is, um, is the four types, right? Understanding that we need to uh, almost fail fast is what I heard you, right? Enacting a plan, right? And, and pause, process, and plan. What I'm seeing is most organizations right now are trying to cure the symptoms instead of the actual disease, or they're treating the mm. symptoms instead of the actual disease itself. So I think that ability to pause and reflect and take a step back and see the big picture is really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the uh, generations and, and how we can almost predict. And I, and Bobby, I, I know you can, uh, you and I can go to our parents' generation. My father is a product of the great depression, right? His parents went through that. So he, you could take good enough care of him, right? But then when I heard what you said, Dr. Yishai, about the needs themselves, the needs needed to be met today have totally been flipped and changed. Mm -hmm. So the target that we were aiming at before the pandemic is not the same target that needs to be aimed at today. And mm -hmm. this is where the call for being more emotionally intelligent in mental health and physical, emotional and financial is really seeing the holistic view rather than a, a more of a linear approach to human capital or people. So I wanted to, I loved, love, love that conversation that you had, Dr. Yishai. So thank you. And, and Bobby, mm -hmm. what question did you have? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that, that was kind of where I wanted to go sort of in that mental health direction. So I know, you know, Dr. Yishai, you've, you've talked a little bit, um, you know, on just sort of the overwhelmed employee or the overwhelmed organization. And we've talked about the pandemic, right, and how that caused us to pause. How about now as we're shifting, you know, individuals are, are asked to come back into the office. Um, you know, we're seeing job postings out there are out, you know, numbering, um, you know, people looking for jobs. So, you know, what that's telling me as an, in, as an HR practitioner, as businesses are looking to grow and, and do more things than ever before, um, and, and seemingly probably do more with less. So, what advice or, or what are you telling your clients or, or coaching your clients on in terms of this, you know, coming back into the office and, and being sort of overwhelmed in the workplace? Mm. Yeah, there are a lot of different components to that that I'm hearing. There's the overwhelm component, there's the planning component, and there's the strategy component, particularly for the businesses. And I think it's important to recognize that taking a 360 view means we're taking multiple points of view. There's the business and its needs there is the people and their needs. And then we have a third kind of leg or component right now is handling all of the ongoing changes and challenges that are we are continuing to face during this pandemic time. 
And that's a lot to balance. So one thing that I like to do is to say, when we talk about the pause process and plan, we need to do the pausing and the processing a lot. I said, it's a very energy intensive process. Um, you know, and Bobby, in answering your question, I wanted to draw in something, Kevin, that you were talking about, which is failing fast or, or implementing fast. I think many people and many businesses try to go to implementing fast to then see if it does or doesn't work. What they're skipping out sometimes on is the pausing and processing, or oftentimes what they're skipping out on is pooling and communicating with the people who are already in the business, with their teams, and saying, what are your needs? When was the last time you heard of leadership that said, oh, we're thinking about coming back into the office. We're going to first have one-on-one -on -one conversations with everybody and get what your thoughts, your feelings are. What, is, what has it been like to be out of the office? What might you be looking forward to when it comes to being back in the office? What might be some challenges? Let's actually do an, a, an exercise. Let's visualize. Imagine you have to come back to the office tomorrow. What are the thoughts, feelings? What are the reactions that are coming up for you? What are you thinking needs to be done or what needs to be addressed for that? Right? This is the pausing and the processing. We're not even planning. We're not thinking about planning yet. Right? We are collecting data. Right? One of the things I like to say is adaptive processes have three critical components. You need data, you need direction, and you need drive. Right? You need information because without that information, you cannot conduct an analysis. You can't set your direction. You can't make a decision. Right? And that decision is about setting a direction, a, a place you want to go. Or you, you, know, you, need, you need a compass, you need a direction. Ideally, you'd also have a destination which informs your direction. It's kind of like putting coordinates into your GPS or putting an address into your GPS. How are you going to go somewhere and, and expect your GPS to work if you don't put an address in there? You need data to put in that address, right? And so data then leads to direction. And even if you have direction, if there's no gas in the tank, you're getting nowhere. If there's no motivation, if there's no buy-in, if your people are not on board with it, well, you're going to end up experiencing a great deal of resistance, not resilience. You're going to end up having people pushing back. They don't want to adapt or they're not interested in it, or they're going to be struggling with it, which is actually going to take a tremendous amount of energy out of them. And guess what's going to happen to their productivity and their engagement in the work? So yeah, it goes, it completely gets, you know, I don't want to say obliterated, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes down the toilet, right? It's just going to be really challenging for them. And so there's a very important set of processes which is why processing is so important. And so what I often, the way I like to approach that is to say, we need to slow down and understand. We need to collect some data. We need to understand what the benefits are for people in their work from home and see if we can integrate that, whether it's in the workplace or out of the workplace. Let's say one of the big benefits for people for work from home is if I need to, I can run to a doctor's appointment. I still got my work done and nobody bothered me. Do people experience that about their workplace? When they have to be at their work? No, people ask, where are you going? Why are you going? How long are you going to be gone? When are you going to be back? When are you going to get worked on? And again, that's something that has, I think, actually changed over time. And again, one of the big challenges is I talk about the flow of communication a lot. And one of the things that's really challenging is when we ask somebody, what's the benefit of, of working from home? How many of them are going to be like, oh, I can go to the doctor's office and nobody bothers me? How many are actually going to tell their manager that? Zero. <laughs> Why? Why are they not saying they're, that? They're afraid. And that's one of the big issues. The fear is about them experiencing their environment. Fear is an emotion. Emotions are actually, from my perspective, adaptive processes. Mm -hmm. It's also helping them to slow down to make an intentional decision mm -hmm. 
right? And so when someone's afraid and they're not going to say something, it's because they perceive there's some kind of danger associated with sharing that information, mm-hmm. right? The danger might be their boss says, well, why are you doing that on work time? When else are they going to do it? Yeah. Doctor's office is open during work hours. They work <laughs> like everybody else, right? Uh, and, and so what happens is they experience their environment as a space or a place that's not safe to communicate their needs. And if they can't communicate their needs, how's the, the workplace going to help meet them? And that's something that the workplace creates, that the leadership creates when they are not open to and they don't build an experience mm-hmm. where communicating your needs allows us to help you meet them mm-hmm. while we also communicate our needs and help you meet our needs as well. It needs to be a bi-directional process. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, Bobby, if that completely answers your question. There's uh, so much more worth digging into there. I, I, but I, I think- agree. I, 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 I want to pause there because I think you talk about the bi-directional, right? We talk about the ego in, in leadership today, right? And, and, and it's not typical that they would turn to their own people for their own solutions to the problems, right? Uh, that was, mm-hmm. a, that was a, a, an appearance of being weak, right? Um, so mm-hmm. here we are asking people externally, consultants that all have different books that they have read and different methodologies that they believe to be true, not knowing mm-hmm. if that's the proper solution for the organization, right? Yeah. Instead of tr- entrusting the people that are closest to the problem and asking them what they think, mm-hmm. we like to be able to put our name on something because then if I can put my name on it and it is now mine, my intellectual capital, that's going to help mm-hmm. me pro- progress my own career. So there's a, there's a, there's a piece of, of selfishness, I believe in there, right? Hmm. But the bi-directional sense of what you're talking about is really unlocking the 360 degree value of human capital. Instead of the linear, the actual time that gives you a product or a solution, what other things are they doing that can have a positive impact on their environment? And if you're creating an environment where they do not feel safe and they're constantly fighting that fight or flight response, they're going to typically walk and they speak with their feet if they can't communicate it with you internally. So I love, love, mm-hmm. love that. You connected so many, so many dots. And your mm-hmm. point about resistance versus resilience, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that I love that. What I want to talk to you about is that the idea of performance has changed, right? So the mm-hmm. idea that you, and I know you speak passionately about this, is, is manufacturing an emotional response that leads to a favorable outcome for both the individual, but also the business in the long term. Can you get into that, please? Yeah. So I'm going to take a step back and then jump into that. There are a couple of things. One is I want to say that I actually got trained in my program, in my PhD program, in doing consulting work for companies. And one of the first and most important things to do is actually to gather data. It's actually to gather information. On my podcast, one of the things that I that I have, I have a whole episode on the cost of missing and dismissing communication inside your company. And this is something I see with leaders all the time, really, really all the time. And it's such a massive problem. And sometimes it happens because of the leader's personality, or I know you called it ego. I have, I have a slightly different way of thinking about it. Sometimes they don't recognize the value in it, or they don't understand that every complaint is actually data. This goes back to the adaptation framework of data direction and drive. And so when you're talking about manufacturing emotions, I'm also going to say, I know that sounds kind of manipulative, but I want to take a step back and then give you this framework, which is emotions are not an end result. We're not here to manipulate them. Emotions are actually a process. They are an adaptive process. Our brains have a system, a way in which they are designed 
to help us adapt to when our environment changes or we have new needs or needs are not being met. That system gives us data about our needs that are not being met or about what's happening in our environment or about something that needs change. They give us tremendous amounts of data. They give us direction. They help to direct us away from things that are harmful and toward things that are really beneficial, that help us thrive, that meet our needs, help us accomplish our goals and our dreams, give us and get us our wants. That same system is also our driving system. It hits the gas and the brakes. It's our motivational system. That entire system is called our emotion system. Sometimes it's also referred to as your limbic system, but it's actually not just some part of your brain. It's your whole brain's design. It's the way in which our whole brain is designed to help us. That is what an emotion is. Most of us think and relate to emotions as some kind of end result of something. You're happy because of something. I'm going to take a step back and say, actually, I have simple definitions for these things as processes. Happiness shows up when we have a want, a need, a goal, or a dream that is in this moment being met, or we see ourselves making significant progress towards it. Why would our brain do that? And I love to give a certain example. Let's say people are in their workplace and they haven't eaten all day because they've just been so focused on getting all the work done that their leadership is telling them they have to get done and there's these deadlines. They haven't worked at all. They step out of their workplace to go home and they're walking over, whether it's to their car or to the public transportation, and they walk past one of their favorite restaurants. What is their brain going to tell them to do? Pop in there, Pop in. right? And when they pop in there and they order their favorite thing from the menu and it shows up and they eat it, what does their brain tell them? What is their brain generating for them as an emotion? Happiness. Hmm? It said, this is great. I'm happy, right? Yeah, uh, that's awesome. I'm happy. Here's a need and a want maybe mm-hmm. that is being met right, right now. What does that do for the future? The next time they're stepping out of their work and they're hungry, before they even step out of work, what is their brain telling them? What images come up? Food. What, food and that specific restaurant and how they can go there on their way home. Happiness is there to help us mark. It plants a giant flag and says, here's a thing. Here's a strategy. Here's an environment, a way, a, an action, a tactic that I can do to get my want, my need, my goal, my dream met. It plants a flag there. And then the next time your brain's like, oh, how do I get this want, need, goal, or dream met? Your brain's like, oh, I planted a flag there. It's got a bookmark in there. We open up the bookmark. We're right there. We read that book. Boom, right? We read that page. We do that thing. Boom. We get our want, our need, our goal, our dream met. I talk a lot about emotion engineering. If you're going to, if you want people at your company to be happy, it's not that complicated. Happiness is not that complicated. If you help your people get their wants, their needs, their goals, their dreams. If you invest in those things, and I understand you got budgets, you need to be intentional and careful with how you do that. You can't toss all the money in the world at them. You can't do that at the cost of your business because money is the blood of your business. And if you, if you donate all your blood, you got none for yourself, then yeah, you can't do anything, yeah. right? So There's the business no needs to profit. take care of. Yeah. And again, the profit is about understanding that if the business isn't generating for the people who are putting tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort, especially the leadership, the founders, the owners, in order to ensure that it is functioning well, a business. I, again, I have another podcast episode how organizations are like organisms. They yeah. are also seeking homeostasis. They also need to take care of all of their needs. 
And as they do that, they can also better care for the people inside, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that that's a critical component of it. If you're going to engineer emotions, and this is where I actually go beyond emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence says there are certain situations under which certain emotions show up and you can have some skills to manage them. Managing emotions, by the way, the way I understand it from emotional intelligence is about trying to get rid of or minimize the ones that don't work, that mm -hmm. aren't pleasant, don't work, that are disruptive, quote unquote, mm -hmm. that are unhelpful, quote unquote, that are negative. You're trying to make them be smaller or go away. Towards the and then you, business, yeah. Yeah, and, and simultaneously, you want to make the, the pleasurable, positive ones increase. Well, if you understand, and this is the keystone of it, if you understand that emotions are a process, that they actually have purpose, like happiness is there to help me direct my actions, Mm -hmm. right? It gives me data about what helps meet my needs. It directs me to do that in the future. And then it drives, it gives me motivation. It hits the gas and says, we are willing and wanting to put more energy and effort into that. It's worth putting that in. When you understand an emotion in that way, even an uncomfortable one, I like to say there's no such thing as a negative emotion, just an uncomfortable one. Because negative, what's so-called negative emotions or uncomfortable ones are giving us data. They are also trying to direct us. And in your business, in your company, the emotions, the complaints even of your people are telling you, they are telling you, they're giving you critical data. They're trying to direct you and your business. And they can be a huge source of drive or motivation if you understand how to handle them and address that, which that. is again, I think where that goes beyond just emotional intelligence, which says they show up in certain situations and you want to have skills and teach people skills to minimize and get rid of the ones we don't like and maximize and, and have more of the ones we do like. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no emotion that's more or less important than the other one. Yeah. They're all equally important. And what motivates us is not the same thing that motivates somebody else. And that's, and that's what I typically have seen is mm -hmm. the, uh, the compensation game, right? So it, the board expectations as to what motivates, obviously, senior leadership within the organization is bonuses and comp and, and, and mm -hmm. executive comp and executive comp structures, right? That's mm -hmm. how they're motivated. And, and, and I have only seen that could be the old target of old, right? So that was before the mm. pandemic, before we had the great pause, right? Um, and, and we made this mad rush to retention bonuses and sign-on bonuses and mm -hmm. money, money, money. But I fear like that money is not having that emotional engineering that the businesses thought that it would to have mm -hmm. that the stickiness, right. That they usually had before within the individual that, Hey, we gotcha. Right. We found the yeah. number that we could buy you for people. Mm -hmm. Like if I heard you correctly earlier, they're not up for sale. Right. So now they're fighting hard to find that boundary, right. That balance or blend of work and life. And really what are they willing to give up of their own time and their own stress, right. And their own life or health for this particular position of this role. So I love, love, love that I think if I heard you right, compensation and compensation only is to emotionally engineer the response to attract, to retain, to develop, to engage, to increase performance is a not the only tool or should not be the only tool. Yeah, there are two things I wanna jump in there. Two things I think that are really important to point out there. One is, and I had said this before, when we rely exclusively on our thought process, as a reflection of reality or prediction of why something is happening, we can make very big mistakes, which is exactly what happens there when people rely on, when people who are motivated in a very big way 
especially when it comes to their business, when it's the board of directors or the leadership or the founder, the owner, a big piece of their motivation is that financial piece when they make the mistake of relying on that thought process instead of collecting data so they can direct their energy, attention, and resources, including perhaps money, and then drive, motivate their employees, what they're doing is, and again, coming back to it, people are not purchasable in part because it is not the only need they have. Are they going to be happy if they have all the money in the world and they do not have other needs that they very much are seeking in their workplace, whether it's freedom, flexibility, whether it's meaningful work or fulfillment, whether it's community or connection, whatever that is. And there are other needs as well. If they are not experiencing or receiving those needs, they are going to experience, surprise, surprise, unhappiness, dissatisfaction, discomfort, and they may seek those needs elsewhere. Yeah. And finding those, creating those avenues and those opportunities to listen, learn, right? I want, employees want to be listened to, valued, and heard, right? And, and, and the businesses that are opening up those lines of communication, those telephone, right? And, and we're, you talking about, hey, top-down approach. We've been talking about, I got to start at the top. You got to kind of change their mindset and their mentality. And that's what I see seemingly, and you keep saying data. Bobby and I and, and what we do here and what I do in, in a professional world is all about data. It's making more data-driven decisions when it comes to something so emotional as human capital because we're unpredictable. What does finance hate? What does, board, what does the board hate? Unpredictability, right? So finding that ability to be, add more predictability to something so unpredictable is that data I use as the breadcrumbs, right? The breadcrumbs that the symptoms that our employees are leaving behind to really tell us how they actually feel, right? Because if we haven't created that environment where they feel safe to voice that opinion, we're going to get an altered state of our reality, right? Of what we think is going on, but there's actually something else. And I've heard it time and time again, where leaders are just told what they want to hear. Right. So then they have this fictitious view of this beautiful mm -hmm. culture that they have, that people are fully engaged and want to be there. And this is really where we're talking about connecting and emotionally engineering, right? The connection is no longer to the work itself, right? The connection is to the mission, the vision, and the values of the organization, unlocking the individual's purpose. And purpose is a stronger emotional connection than the work itself. It, it, is there any other things that you would like to add kind of as we close out here and talk about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business? Is there anything that you see as the what the future of work holds and what businesses can be doing? And I have a, I guess I'm going to pause because I have a, actually, I'm going to ask you a different question. The mm -hmm. question is, and sorry, Bobby, I'm geeking out right now. I'm like, my blood pressure is like through the roof right now. I have to ask this question because we talked about it. You talk, you keep talking about energy and energy conservation, right? And, and you and I talked about this in our first conversation that there, this ability that we constantly get caught in the action and reaction. And it's very hard to get out of that cycle. And we're, we're talking about things that we're looking for more proactiveness, right? We've, we've functioned in a state of organized chaos up until this point. And we've been moderately successful up until this point. But the challenge with that is that when it becomes unpredictable, right, and our financial models are no longer effective at telling us what's going to happen, they never really were, let's face it, there was just not that much change happening externally that would have an impact on those models. So can you talk to me about the humanistic nature to be energy conserving, right? 
and why sometimes we are so reactionary just because it's our own brain kicking into that, 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 that state of no change, right? I don't want to be bothered. Mm -hmm. I just want to be good. This is the way we've always done it. We're going to be okay. Can you go into that? Because I know you geeked, you and I geeked oh, out yeah. pretty good. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. One thing I really, I really like to dig into is recognizing that our brain has, I call it kind of two sides, two systems that are, that are working. And it's a metaphor. Let's be very clear. It's not like your brain literally has like these two parts of them that are executing a specific function. It's actually baked into, it's, it's coded into how our brain works. There are these two forces that are, I call them intention and tandem. And I like to say one of them is your habit brain. Your habit brain is an automating learning process. The purpose of the habit brain is to reduce or lower the required input or energy, right? This is the conserving process, reducing the required energy of input and increasing the output or gain as a result. When we think about tools, by the way, a tool, and this is not just unique to humans, humans are unique in terms of how, how expansive we are about making tools. A tool, the way I define it, is anything that reduces the required input and increases the output. An example of that is a bike versus walking. Walking, how much energy input does it take you and what is your output? How far do you get? What about a bike? Less energy input, more energy output. In the extreme, often an invention is when you've reduced the input so much, you've increased the output so much that you have access to something new that you never had access to. And our brain is designed to do this internally for us. That's the very definition of a habit is a process in which the energy input is so low. That's why we don't think about it, right? It is a non-thinking process. It is a behavioral process where the energy input is low to get started. And the idea is that the output is significantly higher in part because we're doing it repeatedly. We're also getting better at it. This is one element aspect, one force in our brain that's functioning all the time. What can sometimes happen is we have, again, a second force, which is our adaptive brain, I like to call it. That's the part of our brain, not the part of, literally the way in which our brain is designed to help us generate new awareness, new analysis, and new action. Now, each of those, I think, is extremely useful under certain conditions. When, when our environment is staying pretty much static, do we need to adapt? Is it useful to expend tons of energy trying to change things? No. In fact, that's counterproductive. It's harmful. And we are designed as a species. We're really good at understanding that. We don't need to, to consciously know it in order to be acting and enacting it all the time. When our circumstances are the same, our habit brain needs to kick into high gear. It's better for it to kick into high gear, and it's extremely useful. However, when our environment is changing, or when there are changes in ourselves and the people around us, in our needs, for whatever the reason is, that's a moment where we actually really need to engage our adaptive brain, which is, again, higher energy. It's more energy intensive. However, what it allows us to do is to pivot and adapt. It allows us to make changes, to not just do the same thing without thinking, because I, I know the old definition for insanity is doing the same thing and expecting to get different results, yeah. <laughs> right? When you need different results, you need to engage your adaptive brain. When your environment changes, you're going to need different results. So I, the way I think about it is it's understanding 
how our psychology and how our brains and what neuroscience has shown us about our brains, how it works, and then how to match it to the circumstance or situation in which we need it, which is where data is really useful. It's challenging because change is often happening, while at the same time, some things may be very much staying the same. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if you were waking up somewhere different in a different bed, perhaps in a different city, in a different time zone every day. Yeah, that would be really difficult. Yeah. Right. At the Your same time, when we never the same. Right. And that would require a tremendous amount of adaptability. That would require a lot more energy. Mm-hmm. However, for many, if not most of us, perhaps the vast majority, that's not happening. However, throughout our day, there are some differences. Mm-hmm. And being intentional and in knowing when we need to engage our habit brain and when we need to engage our adaptive brain is critical. I agree. And I think, you, like you said, the data direction and drive, right, is almost what we've been ingrained in our heads. I degree in biology myself is the scientific method. And what that is, is you start mm-hmm. with the direction and work backwards to understand mm-hmm. what data supports that, what data does not support that. Mm-hmm. Data, would you track to even engage if you know if you're on, car, on course or off course? So I love that. Bobby, why don't you wrap us up with the last question of the show today? I'm geeking out. I could talk to Dr. Yishai for the next 17 hours, like I said, before we got on the call. Um, so, Bobby, why don't you just take us home with the last question? Yeah, yeah. So one, one of the things we always ask our guests is, you know, being sort of this uh, as part of the, this HR revolution and the, and the revolution of, of work, we just kind of want to get your thoughts and opinions on what, what do you see as the future of work? Where are we heading as, as a workforce as a workplace, mm-hmm. um, both from you know a humanistic standpoint, um, you know, and and sort of a business standpoint as well. Yeah, great question. So I'm going to say, have you ever heard the old saying, "It takes a village to yes. raise to raise a kid"? Uh, I like to say, "It takes a village to be a human." We don't just need a village to raise us. I think we often have that mentality, and. That is perhaps a mentality that has persisted, particularly about workplaces, that they view it as you bring an individual in, they don't need a village, they don't need anything more, you just bring them in, you pay them, you expect work from them, or you tell them what you expect from them, and that's the end of the story. Where work is going, I think, is if you want to see it as bifurcating or two roads, one road is people who continue or companies who continue to treat it this way, you don't need a village, people's needs don't matter. You just exchange time for money. And the other one is creating an understanding in an increasingly nuanced and deeper way. What is this village? What are the needs people have? What are their goals and dreams? How can a company serve and become that village for those people as individuals and then as a group as well in ways that also help the business thrive. That is where the future of work, I think, is going. I think not everybody's going to get on that road. And what you're going to end up seeing is when people are on the other road, there are going to be a lot of people who stumble off of that road or like, let me, let me turn back and get on the other road when they see companies that are doing that. I mean, I think that's already been in process. I'm thinking or wondering if perhaps elements of the pandemic have accelerated that process. And we talked at length about that. You know, and one thing I wanted to also say is when it comes to being intentional about creating that village, and this goes back to the three Ds that I like to call, that's part of my 3D adaptation framework. And I have these frameworks, and this is what the work that I do when I work with companies, and even when I work with leadership, 
and even executive coaching, whether it's on a personal level or for their company. Um, what the work that I help them do is learning to understand how to collect and generate and understand that data, how to use that data to select a direction, and then how to tap into the drive, the motivation that's part of this process. And I think that that's so critical because so many people talk about and so many businesses think so much about the systems, the processes, the habits, how to automate everything. And again, that's useful in a lot of cases. It, when it isn't useful in the use case where that is actually potentially hampering or harmful, the business and its growth or serving the people in a way that allows them to become and be part of a village that they can then give to each other and get from each other and from the business, well, then that, that necessitates an adaptive approach, the three Ds of which are the, the basic framework under which you can really make deeper sense of and learn how to figure this out and learn how to create processes that are going to be a bit more energy intensive and simultaneously can become automated to some degree without stripping the humanity out of it, without stripping away the village, but in a way that serves and helps the village continue to grow and nurture each person in it. And of course, always the business too. I love that. Yeah. And, and We've that asked is. that question how many times, Kevin? I, I I think that's that's my favorite answer we've gotten yeah. so far. Yeah. So I would I would I would second that. So beautiful, beautiful response. And I think just in summary to close this out is that is why we call for HR, right? This revolution or evolution of HR to really understand the business, right? And understand how the business makes money. How do they lose money and where do they spend it? And because if they don't have, and typically HR practitioners and professionals have the understanding of the humanistic side of things, but exploring, reading, you know, diving into the psych psychological side and helping find those win-win and those win-win-win scenarios more often than not mm -hmm. is going to create that, that strong employee engagement that organizations have not yet been able to put on their finger for the last 15 years because it's hovered at yeah. 30%. Some of the things that we know to be very important have been done haphazardly for so long that now they're starting to bear their ugly head as to what happens when it's not right. And, and, and one of the things that is, is, is the overarching theme is trust and communication, I think is the biggest, biggest overarching themes that I've heard. But I want to pause. I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Yishai, for being a, a special, special guest on our show. Thanks for blessing us with all this great intel and this great information that we can start to learn and apply and making some of these more data fact-driven decisions when it comes to humans and really getting back to, to why we started in HR or personnel many, many years ago. It's about the people. The people make the organiza organizations great. It's just a resetting of priorities. Uh, the needs like we talked about have been adjusted and really start to take those first couple of steps forward in this new world of work. So thank you so much for being a great guest today on our show. I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Thank you both, uh, both Kevin and, and Bobby. Bobby, you had incredible questions. Kevin, the kind of putting things together, synthesizing them and the follow-ups and just such deep and important questions and pulling it all together. Uh, it's just been really an incredible conversation. I also feel likewise really honored to be here and just been such a pleasure to, to have this conversation and, and to get into it together. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And maybe we'll have, we'll have to do it again. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs>